You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. When should a healthcare professional treating their type 2 patient with diabetes consider using insulin or incretin treatment or both? Joining us to discuss insulin and incretin treatment is President-elect of the American Diabetes Association and Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Section of Endocrinology at Tulane University Medical Center in New Orleans, Louisiana, Dr. Vivian Fonseca. Dr. Fonseca, welcome to ReachMD. Hello, Dr. Edelman. Okay, Vivian, let's... This is going to be a great topic because um, we know that the GLP-1 agonists or incretin-based group of drugs are really becoming so important in our treatment of type 2 diabetes, uh, and especially when we get to the point where we may be able to choose insulin or an incretin-based therapy. Before we get into that, I want to talk about uh, the importance of the fasting versus postprandial blood sugar, their contribution to the A1C, and which one is more important. So you've raised some very good questions, Steve. And firstly, I should say that, you know, although we often make the choice between GLP-1 therapy or incretin therapy and insulin, they both have a very good place in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Secondly, when you're choosing between fasting and postprandial, again, both are important. You want good glucose control all the time because you want to eliminate the complications of diabetes, which are very glucose-driven, it's mainly the microvascular complications. So in terms of uh, making that choice of prandial versus fasting, a, a nice study was done in patients with myocardial infarction. It's called a HART2T study, and they were treated with either Lyspro insulin or, or basal insulin. And at the end of the study, there was no difference in outcomes between the two groups. Both groups were equally well controlled. So what that tells me is that right now, at least, we don't have any evidence that targeting one is better than the other. Of course, GLP-1 may target postprandial in a very different way than lysproinsulin does, and we will need to do similar studies to determine whether that makes a difference to outcomes. I actually think that both are complementary. You could, ideally, you have to treat both the fasting and the postprandial. You particularly need to focus on the fasting when the blood sugar is very high, or you need to target the postprandial when the A1C is just a little bit above gold. So, you know, we often see patients who have fasting sugars of around 100, 110, who have an A1C of 7.3. And obviously, they are getting postprandial hypoglycemia of a substantial ex- extent, and we need to treat that. Yeah. You know, Vivian, I, I agree with you. I mean, we, we have to sort of mimic what happens in the natural state, and blood sugars elevated after meals for two to three hours is just not normal and contributes to the glycemic load. Now, um, before we get into the incretin effect I thought you might give our listeners a brief overview of the classic metabolic defects in type 2 diabetes. You're absolutely right. The number of defects in type 2 diabetes. 
First of all, you don't get diabetes until you have loss of pancreatic function. So although under insulin resistance is an important defect, it is associated with diabetes, not every obese person gets diabetes. Although all of them will have insulin resistance, you only get diabetes when the pancreas stops making enough insulin. And initially, it does it in the postprandial state, then ultimately all the time. So that, those are the two major defects that we've considered in the past, beta cell function and peripheral insulin resistance. But we've now come to recognize that there are several other abnormalities. So, for example, glucagon secreted next door to insulin from the alpha cell is high, particularly in the postprandial stage in people with type 2 diabetes, and it does not get suppressed. And what glucagon does is it makes increased glucose in the liver. The liver puts out more glucose, increased hepatic glucose production, and that too continues during the postprandial state when you don't need it, contributing to very high glucose. So you have this combination of not enough insulin, too much glucagon at certain times, too much glucose being put out in the, in the liver, and that glucose in the circulation is not disposed of in the, in the periphery into muscle cells where it needs to be or in fat cells to be stored. And fat cells also have their own cytokines, adipokines, that contribute to these abnormalities in some way, contribute to cardiovascular disease. So all these multiple defects are linked with one another in concert, they cause hypoglycemia and contribute to long-term complications. Yeah, well, thank you. That I think certainly the insulin resistance, the beta cell deficiency, the excess of glucagon driving hepatic glucose production is something that we've known about for a long time. Well, where does the incretin effect fit in? And, and describe to our listeners what that is. The incretin effect is, is very interesting. It was discovered sometime in the 70s that people would secrete more insulin when glucose was given orally as compared to giving it intravenously, although the, the level of glucose that was achieved with either route of administration was the same. So you guys say you got a high glucose, you produce more insulin if that glucose was given orally. So it was thought at that time that there must be something from the gut that's signaling insulin secretion. And the term incretin was given to it. Uh, we now know that there are many incretins, and probably GLP-1 is the most important of these, although GIP is another incretin, and there may be other uh, hormones that are lesser players in this. The main role of incretins, like GLP-1, is to stimulate insulin secretion from the pancreas when the glucose is high. It's very glucose-dependent. But it also has an important role in suppression of glucagon, which is something that we had forgotten about. We haven't had uh, drugs that target glucagon before. So you're doing two things, and thereby regulating uh, glucose production in the liver, as well as producing more insulin to dispose of the glucose in the periphery. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Vivian Fonseca. We are discussing insulin and incretin treatment for type 2 diabetes. Currently, when patients fail oral medications, they get to a decision point in therapy, and you can either go to an injectable such as insulin or an injectable such as 
these GLP-1 agonists such as exenatide or liraglutide, how do you help uh, our listeners make the distinction of which road to take? We've been helped a lot to answer this question in a number of clinical trials comparing insulin with GLP-1 head-to-head in patients who are failing on oral agents. This was first done with exenatide and it's now been done with liraglutide. So if you randomize patients to one or the other of these therapies, you achieve good glycemic control in both. You can get the A1C down equally, uh, usually about a little over 1% in each group. But you get weight loss with the GLP-1 agonist and weight gain with insulin, as you well know. You're also more liable to get hypoglycemia with insulin than with adding GLP-1 unless the sulfonylurea starts working again and contributes towards hypoglycemia. So essentially, you have a choice. Can you, uh, you, does your patient want to lose weight? In which case, a GLP-1 is an obvious choice. If you, do you want to avoid hypoglycemia? And again, GLP-1 is an obvious choice. On the other hand, if your patient's blood sugar is very, very high, I think the ability to titrate insulin uh, to, as, to go as high as you need to go does make insulin a rational choice in that situation. Vivian, um, when you say insulin therapy, I think, you know, I, I assume you're talking about basal insulin. That is correct. That is basal therapy to control it. So you've actually, uh, you haven't asked directly, but I'm sure you're alluding to another very important distinction between these two therapies. The GLP-1 analogs will control postprandial glucose better, whereas the uh, uh, basal insulin will control fasting glucose better. So although the A1C is equal, it, it, it's a question of what you're trying to target. And for some patients, uh, one may be more important than the other. There's another important subtle difference if you look at beta cell function. Beta cell function is improved a lot more with GLP-1 therapy than with simply replacing insulin, particularly if you're replacing basal insulin. What the implication of that is in the long term, we don't know, but there are long-term clinical trials that are just starting up uh, with the GLP-1 analogs that will tell us that. What about the thought of using them together? This is off-label. It's not being approved yet. But there was a study presented at the American Diabetes Association a few months ago by Dr. Buse where he combined exenatide with, uh, with basal insulin, glargine, and saw some very good results. The A1C was uh, more effective than using either therapy alone. You got both fasting control with the uh, insulin and good postprandial control with the exenatide. Uh, I understand there's some studies going on with liraglutide in combination with insulin. I expect very similar results. So uh, I think we can uh, look forward in the future to using this kind of therapy uh, more than what we have so far because of this label indication. We need to think about the body as making, uh, regulating glucose through multiple hormones, insulin, GLP-1, various cytokines, amylin, all these things together, suppression of glucagon, all are are important. If we focus on only one aspect, we will never get the disease under control and keep it under control long term. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Section of Endocrinology at Tulane University Medical Center in New Orleans, Louisiana, and 
president-elect of the American Diabetes Association, Dr. Vivian Fonseca. Dr. Fonseca, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Pleasure, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin, and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.